This week takes us to Lancaster, where a victim's diary helps law enforcement solve a brutal triple homicide. This is episode 58 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031. And this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the murder of Donna Jester, Dalpha Jester, and Laura Lee Owen by their roommate, I guess you would say, uh, David Martin Long. I also made the horrible mistake of starting laundry right before I recorded this. So if you hear any background noise or dogs breathing heavily, we went on a big hike and I started laundry. So it's, it's not me, it's them. But yeah, anyway, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. Wait, I lied. Um, before we get started, I do have something to tell you. This is just a fun fact that, I don't know, I realized this the other day, and I don't know if this is on purpose or how I really did this. Um, so I, I started putting out episodes again with Greg Kelly, <clears throat> right, whose uh, case took place in the suburbs of Austin. And then I covered Michael Cahill, whose murder took place in Austin in 1979. Then I covered the murder of Betty Stotts, who was killed in 1979 and had spooky premonition journal entries, remember? Now I'm going to tell you yet again another story with spooky journal entries. And there is a station wagon involved, just like Betty's car. And, and a spoiler alert, we have another execution. When do the synchronicities end? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I love that stuff. So anyone else? No? Great. Anyways, picture it. Lancaster, Texas, 1986. Um, I'll be honest. I had heard of Lancaster, but never really knew where it was. Um, but came to find out it's just like 20 minutes south of Dallas, um, which is a little embarrassing since I am from Dallas. But oh, well. So now, you know, if anyone gave a shit. Um, so it is Monday morning, September 29th, 1986. And 37-year-old Donna Jester never showed up for her shift at work that day. This is how it always starts out, right? Concerned, Donna's employer calls up the police and asks if they can swing by her house at 1010 Bayport Drive. Do you think they say 1010 or 1010? I don't know. I'm going to go with 1010 uh, Bayport Drive there in Lancaster and do a welfare check. Sergeant Everett Powell responds at the home to look in on Donna and make sure that everything's okay. Sergeant Powell begins to walk up to the small house and first notices that the front door is wide open and a few steps down from the porch uh, staircase, there looks to be a bundle of clothing lying there on the ground. Except as you probably guessed, as he got closer, he realized that the bundle of clothing was actually a dead female. I kind of find it interesting how our minds play tricks on our, our eyes or, or vice versa. I'm not really sure how that works. But, um, you know, is it a self-preservation tactic that we're inherently given as we develop? Or is it because the majority of us will never see a dead body, especially in such a brutal state? So we just really don't understand what we're truly seeing. I, if anyone knows, let me know. I could just Google it or read a fucking book, I guess. I don't know. I just just a thought I had. If you, you know, when you see something, your your mind is telling you to see something else to sort of save you from 
the despair, if you will. Anyways, back to the bundled dead person on the ground. Sergeant Powell sees that the person has a large gash to the back of her head and immediately calls for backup. Officer Raymond Longoria arrives to assist Sergeant Powell with the remaining search of the property and house. They weren't sure if the suspect who did this to the woman was still around or if the attacker was inside the home or really what they were walking into. The two men cautiously enter the home and start to make their way through each room in the house. They don't find anything or anyone in the living room, so they continue on to the next door on the right of the hallway they were walking down. The two officers enter a bedroom and come face to face with a second female sitting on the bed, and then a third, an elderly woman lying on the bed. Both women had been butchered in the face and head. There was blood everywhere. The walls, the ceilings, and the entire bed are covered in blood. I have a picture of the bedroom that I will post on Instagram if you want a better visual. Sergeant Powell and Officer Longoria clear the rest of the house and don't find anyone else in any of the rooms or backyard area. While sweeping the remainder of the home, they do, however, stumble upon a possible murder weapon. Wrapped in a towel in one of the home's sinks lies a bloody hatchet with a three-inch wide blade. So it becomes immediately apparent that all three of these women were hacked to death in their necks, heads, and faces until they died. The victims were the home's owners, Donna Jester and her mother, Delpha Jester. They were the women found in the bedroom, but the woman lying in the front yard had yet to be identified. The worst part, in my opinion, is that the corpses had been rotting away for at least two days, meaning that they were all most likely killed on Friday or Saturday, September 27th or September 28th, and were not found until Monday. So all of those bodies cooking in the Texas summer heat for several days has got to be pleasant for sure. As expected, these murders become a huge story in the small town of Lancaster, and they are on high alert, all of the residents. The Lancaster Police Department begin their investigation immediately and start their search for the killer with motive. Detective Matt Hunt was assigned to the case back in 1986, and he believed, based on the fact that there, were, there was no uh, forced entry, then the probability of the victims knowing their murderer was quite high. He could also tell that the attacks carried on for a while. Both of the crime scenes, the one in the bedroom and the other in the yard, were telling a rage-filled story that lasted for several minutes. The blood evidence showed a pattern throughout the house of the suspect going back and forth from the yard to the bedroom. This told investigators that the suspect possibly attacked one of the women first and then went and attacked another and back and forth until all their heads were chopped, deformed, and practically decapitated. Additionally, it appeared that the perpetrator attempted to wash off the murder weapon and clean up the house a bit before fleeing. But if the women did, in fact, know their killer, then who could have done this to them and why? Donna Jester was known around town to be very kind and generous, but also quite private. She didn't socialize too much and primarily took care of her mother, who, despite only being in her 60s, was going blind, practically bedridden, and if she did get out of bed, she was only mobile with the assistance of a walker. Clues regarding the identity of the third victim slowly began appearing once her body and belongings began to be investigated. The woman was wearing a pair of socks that displayed the name of the restaurant she worked at. Additionally, she was wearing her name tag that was part of her uniform as well. The detectives went to the restaurant and confirmed her identity by an application and a pay stub that included her social security number. Since the restaurant manager had kept good records, they were able to identify the woman as Laura Lee Owen. Laura was a young and beautiful girl who had befriended Donna and was more or less unofficially living with Donna and Dalpha. Laura had even listed 1010 Bayport Drive as her address on her work application. 
It started to become apparent to the detectives that Donna was a very compassionate person and would take in house guests frequently. During the police's canvas of the neighborhood, they questioned the residents in the area. The neighbors told the police they had most recently noticed a young white man staying at the house with the women. The neighborhood witnesses confirmed what the man looked like, which evidently was so basic and general the description could have fit anyone. They told police that they primarily saw the man doing chores around the house and fixing some things outside, you know, um, handyman-type tasks. All of the people who spoke to the police that were from the neighborhood said that nothing seemed off or suspicious while he was there, but the only thing that was odd now, um, you know, besides them all getting fucking murdered, was the fact that Donna's car was missing. Donna owned a 1981 wood-paneled Ford station wagon, and it usually sat right outside the driveway area of the home. According to witnesses, that car hadn't been seen at the house or in the area for the last two days. Going off of the lead that the neighbors provided, Lancaster police began to question family and friends of the women. Donna's sister, Janice, uh, Janice with an S, by the way, was specifically asked if Donna had been seeing any men or if Janice knew of any male friends or past relationships of Donna in general and that if she thought they could have been involved in the murders. Giving investigators their first big lead, Janice tells the police that she knew Donna had been seeing a guy named Thomas. Evidently, according to Janice, Donna had been quite serious about Thomas and things were going pretty well. However, Thomas wasn't ready to settle down and wasn't ready to be exclusive. Police initially thought Thomas was a good suspect for the murders due to the fact that he and Donna had a falling out not that long ago. They thought that maybe there was some sort of domestic altercation and an argument that got out of hand, and that he killed Donna, but then he felt like he had to kill everyone since they witnessed Donna's murder. This was a strong first person of interest. Detective Matt Hunt is quickly able to track down Thomas at the military base he is stationed at. Thomas openly admits to the detective that he and Donna had dated, but that things ended because of exclusivity differences. Thomas claims that they broke up a while ago and that he actually had an alibi for the day and even the weekend the murders occurred. Thomas's alibi was that he actually reported for duty at his military base five days before the murders even took place. While Detective Hunt is mid-investigation, he gets an odd visit from a guy named Millard Hardy. Um, I'm going to give that a forensic files for the double A-R-D in both first and last name. Um, I'm not going to refresh you guys on forensic files. If you don't know, go back and listen. Anyways, this Millard, uh, okay. Additionally, when I read his name, I have to give specific effort into not pronouncing it Millard. Like, I don't know, an English asshole. Like this just, it, it looks like Millard, not Millard. So anyway, I'm trying really hard not to mess it up. Anyway, um, yeah, Millard said <laughs> that he had heard the news of the women's murders over the radio or like a news report, and he figured he'd better go ahead and make the first move and head on over to the police station since they would be reaching out to him at some point soon anyways, since he actually knew the women. Millard Hardy was one of the many house guests that had previously stayed at Donna Jester's home. In classic 1980s fashion, Millard had been hitchhiking and Donna had picked him up, offered him a place to stay, and in return he'd do some work around her property. He was even able to confirm that Laura was also a fellow drifter who was hitchhiking, and Donna had picked her up shortly after he had begun living at the Jester home. 
Millard told Detective Hunt that Donna and Laura had really hit it off and become good friends throughout her time at the home. Donna really helped Laura get on her feet, get a job, and get her life going again. Despite their age difference, they were incredibly close. While this was a good look for Millard Hardy, police also thought this could just be a ruse, and if he was the killer, then this was just a way to stay a step ahead of the police and insert himself into the investigation like many murderers do. Millard also knew that his fingerprints were in the house. That was even more reason for the police to place him under suspicion. Despite all of these concerns and misgivings surrounding Millard Hardy, Detective Hunt confirmed that he had been in Houston with his parents for several days prior to the murders occurring and hadn't left their home. At this point, I would like to say that I'm very proud of the Lancaster Police and Detective Matt Hunt for doing such a thorough and honest job, because I wouldn't have been surprised if they had tried to pin this on either one of those men. I mean, Millard Hardy would have been an easier you know, person to frame simply based on the fact that he was a drifter and, you know, maybe his parents were covering for him regarding his alibi and stuff. Plus, you know, um, the military and law enforcement can <laughs> kind of have that boys club feel and brotherhood type thing. Like we're both men in service type vibe. Um, no offense. It's just, it's an observation that I've made at the police department that I work at. So I don't know. I think that maybe they would have taken it easier on Thomas due to his military experience and his potentially way more secure alibi that of being on a military base that has curfews and check-ins and usually is a lot, you know, more supervised. However, you know, regardless of my opinions, they are able to rule out Millard Hardy fairly quickly, but they hold out hope on old military Thomas for some time. However, once again, Thomas is eventually cleared when the police department receives a fax from his commander showing a typed document advising of Thomas's 100% without a shadow of a doubt being on base and not leaving the base at all during the time the murders were committed. Um, sorry, not sorry. Don't email me about this. But how many cases have there been that we know of, let alone the cases that we don't? where you know, police take the easy way out and skip the detective work, fudge some statements, alibis, or a person's fucking rights, and decide, yeah, this guy will do. The answer is, is numerous cases. I mean, it's tragic. We all know that. But I would like to take a minute to really, like I mentioned before, say thank you to Detective Hunt and any of the officers working on this case because that just that's just how cases should be worked. I'll tell you now, this case takes a month to be solved, but A, that's not really that bad, and B, at least they put in the work and caught the real perpetrator instead of settling for an easy scapegoat. Anyways, I'll shut up, but my point is, either of these men could have been framed, maybe one more than the other, and yet the police kept persisting until all of the pieces fit. Primarily because, remember, they haven't been able to find Donna's car, and they believe that once they can locate the vehicle, that will most likely lead them to the suspect. In the meantime, the medical examiners have completed their autopsies on Donna, Laura, and Dalpha. Laura had approximately 21 chop, hack, and bludgeoning wounds to her head, face, and neck area, whereas Donna had 15 wounds and Dalpha only had five. In most cases, we know that if there are multiple victims involved in a murder, the one that sustains the most damage or injuries during the murder is most likely the target of the crime itself. However, in this case, the wound count between Laura and Donna was fairly similar. So it was hard for the investigators to try and figure out who was truly the main focus of this brutal attack and homicide. Going off of the attacks on Laura and Donna, they hone in on Laura and attempt to figure out where she came from and what her past was like. 
Perhaps they thought she had brought in some nefarious person she was involved with when she was homeless and hitchhiking, and maybe she had some sort of violent and dangerous history the police weren't aware of. Detective Hunt was able to finally track down Laura's family, whom she had not been in contact with for some time. Laura's father was living in Florida, where Laura had grown up. He confirmed that she had been a bit of a wild runaway type back in her younger teens and left home often. He told police he hadn't seen or heard from her in over a year, but provided officers with a picture he had of her to confirm her identity. Detective Hunt was in total shock when he compared her picture to what he had witnessed at the crime scene and autopsy. He was now looking at the picture of a beautiful young girl who was murdered when she was only 17 years old. The trauma and tragedy really set in for everyone involved in the investigation during this time, and soon after meeting her father, police confirmed that nothing or no one in Laura's past was the instigator or catalyst in the murders, and they were back to square one. Now, with no suspect or motive, Detective Hunt returns to the home that the women shared to search for more clues, and to just get a new and revived approach to the case. Maybe they had missed something during the initial investigation. Maybe there was more evidence somewhere in the house that they had overlooked. Detective Hunt believed anything personal to the victims, anything still at the scene, or anything missing from the scene could be the next lead to the suspect. While at the house, Detective Hunt begins to go through some old cabinets and search behind the drawers and things filed away. In them, he stumbles upon multiple personal diaries. Uh, I used to keep diaries because I wanted to be like Harriet the Spy. She was my adolescent idol. Um, I actually rewatched that movie not that long ago and it holds up, by the way. Uh, anyways, Donna's sister, Janice, remember, um, she knew that Donna kept a diary or a daily journal, but she never realized that Donna had so many that spanned a number of years. Donna had countless entries going back quite some time, and she was very meticulous, detailed, and thorough in her entries. Her sister said it was almost a hobby for Donna that she did religiously. Donna Jester's diaries would be essential in solving the women's murders. I'll post a picture of the main journal on Instagram, but it, it's a small green journal with pony stickers on it. They almost look like um, Lisa Frank iridescent stickers. It looked great. Anyways, in this diary, uh, a notebook marked journal number five held one of the biggest clues. Donna's last entry was done right around when the murders took place, confirming when the women were killed. Additionally, the journals contained a new name that police had yet to be aware of. Her journal reads, Still depressed. Wish I could settle something with Dale. I wish I could back out of the picture. I have such fears that I won't ever win Dale. Dale has been in my thoughts all day today. Can't seem to get him off my mind. The fruitlessness of it bores home and I weep the, with frustration and self-pity. I guess I am just a little piece on the side. Donna's sister believes that these written words speak to the fact that Donna was lonely and hadn't really been successful romantically. She knew Donna wanted to get married and possibly have children, but as of late, those plans hadn't worked out. You know, she's, she's left to sort of be this constant caretaker for her poor bedridden mother, and she has taken on this role of landlord and mother figure to these drifters in, a, in an attempt to have some sort of semblance of a social life, but, you know, perhaps she never felt the love and care in return by really anyone. It's pretty sad. Unfortunately, despite the journal listing a man named Dale and Donna having some sort of romantic feelings for him, the police are struggling to pinpoint exactly who Dale is and how Donna knew him. 
As Detective Hunt retraces Donna's journal entries, he reads a page or two about Donna picking up an attractive man on the way to a friend's house for dinner. She continues writing, stating that the man she picked up is called David Long. She writes that David didn't have a place to go, so it was decided that he'd stay at her house. After reading through the journals, the general consensus from police and Donna's family was that due to Donna's poor string of luck with men as of late, it was believed that Donna thought, wow, God put this good-looking guy right in my path. Maybe I'm supposed to pick up this man and help him get off back on his feet. You know, this was meant to be. Donna brings David back to her home and introduces David to Dalpha and Laura, and things are off to a great start. According to Donna's diary, when David arrived, there was some kissing and some making out on the first night of David's stay at the home, but that was really about it. A few lines later, she writes something quite haunting. Quote, David is the nicest and the most honorable person I have ever met. In parentheses, except Laura, of course. Uh, so crushing, especially how we uh, know how this plays out. After the first night, however, Donna slowly begins to see how much more attention David is giving to Laura than her. Donna is getting the feeling that he is more attracted to Laura due to her age and beauty and that she herself is being kicked to the curb. She has now even witnessed Laura and David kissing in the rooms in the house, and David is becoming more avoidant of Donna each day. After seeing the two kiss, Donna feels absolute rejection and embarrassment. Honestly, I think anyone would feel how Donna did. You know, you, you bring these two homeless and helpless people into your home and this is what happens. They start fucking in your house, on your sheets, in your bed after you've already told the guy you kind of have a thing for him and have tried to make moves on him. Like, it's cringy as fuck. Not saying anyone is right or wrong in this scenario, but it's all just awkward. Like, I, I, get, I get what Donna's probably feeling and it's, it's awful. In addition to the awkwardness and rejection, Donna is noticing that David's behavior has significantly changed. He is being more aggressive, getting agitated more easily, and is drinking far more often than he did when they first met. Red wine, to be exact. <laughs> In every diary entry she makes, she notes a fight between she and David. He is accusing her of playing head games with him or nagging him or blaming him for any number of things that go wrong within the house. Besides this... David's alcohol use has significantly increased, as I mentioned before, but now David becomes belligerent and violent. Now, however, he wasn't just arguing with Donna, rather he was being rude and fighting with all of the women. Not long after David's drinking surged, Donna began to get physically abused by him. Donna desperately wanted to protect Laura and her mother from David's outbursts and rage and would stop at nothing to defend them. Donna even played it cool with David by holding his hand when he would get drunk enough to come on to her or by reciprocating awkward niceties to keep the peace around the home. In her last diary entry before her death, Donna writes, I am so tired. It's 7.30 and I'm going to bed. Detective Hunt believes that she and the other women are killed the very next day, which was Saturday, September 27th, 1986. Now being provided with his name, police now zero in on David Martin Long just in time for a call to come in advising that Donna's station wagon had been located 100 miles away in Buffalo, Texas. Detective Hunt immediately drives to Buffalo to retrieve the vehicle and see what the fuck was going on. He told the Leon County Sheriff's Office who found the vehicle to hold it for evidence. This is when the main part of the investigation is really about to begin. 
Upon arrival at the Leon Sheriff's or Leon County Sheriff's Office, Detective Hunt is introduced to Deputy Broadhead. Mm, forensic files. The deputy explains that they received a call about a drunk driver driving in the opposite direction of the highway. When the car was located, the vehicle and the driver were in a ditch off to the side of the road. The driver was highly intoxicated and fully passed out behind the wheel of the car. When the deputy tried to remove the driver from the car, he becomes combative and resists arrest. Officer Broadhead said, quote, he seemed crazed. He was cussing and ranting and raving about Jesus and God. He kept banging his head against my squad car until he cut his head, end quote. So they finally transport the guy to Leon County Jail, but during the booking process, he refuses to identify himself. So a state police officer goes back to the car, which had been impounded by this point, and found a Texas driver's license inside the car that identified him as David Martin Long. Duh. They finally book him in jail and place him in the county's drunk tank. During that time, David begins to chat with the other two people who are in the cell with him. The men begin to notice David's clothes are covered in bloodstains and his arms have dried blood all over them. Soon after this observation, the men call David out on the blood, and he confesses to them that he killed Donna, Dalpha, and Laura. Not only did he tell these men, but he told the officer in charge of the jail that night as well. The jailer immediately called the sheriff and told him what David Long was saying about the murders. His drunk driving arrest occurs the night of the murders, but the Leon County Sheriff dismisses his confessions as drunk ramblings, and in turn, David's statements are pretty much ignored and go unreported. He is only charged with the DUI and is able to walk right out of the county jail, a free man, because he puts up Donna's car as collateral and bonded out. Excellent. Despite Leon County Sheriff Royce Wilson denying this claim, it is alleged that they released David Martin Long on his own reconnaissance, and the sheriff's office even bought him a bus ticket to Houston. However, when released, David got out on the highway and hitchhiked after cashing in the ticket. What's crazy to me is that NCIC, um, so that's the National Crime Information Center, um, that was established in the 1960s. So 20 years later, this database should have been utilized to assist in the investigation. Granted, I, I don't know when slash if all of the departments were given access to NCIC, um, but if all was done as it should be, the Lancaster police should have entered the station wagon, Donna's station wagon, as stolen. And when the license plate was ran when David was arrested for his DUI in Buffalo, it should have come back as stolen in the database. And he would have presumably been caught that night rather than several weeks later. Plus, if they would have just done a cursory search of the car, they would have found more than just his ID inside. We'll go more into that in just a second. The Lancaster police finally get to process the car and immediately they see bloodstains everywhere in the vehicle. Pedals, floorboard, handles, mirrors, keychain, literally fucking everything. So now with this crime scene of a car located and processed, a warrant is finally issued for David's arrest in the murders of Donna, Dalpha, and Laura. During this time, investigators and the public are made aware of his significant criminal history. David Martin Long was born in Tom Green County, Texas. David had two brothers and a sister, and he lived in California as a child. Two of his older siblings made claims that their father was an alcoholic who often neglected them as kids. David's behavior became problematic after their mother died when he was 10 years old, and soon after, David was sent to foster homes, and he was enrolled in a reformatory school by the age of 12. 
David began regularly drinking alcohol around that time, and he subsequently abused illicit drugs, including heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. I keep saying the word David over and over again, and all I can think of are the compilations of the the Schitt's Creek, um, you know, ew, David, no, David, gross, David. Uh, Yeah, that's just, I've never even watched the show. I've just seen it on social media. Uh, As a young adult, David worked as an installation technician for uh, cable television companies in Texas. One of his coworkers said that he made a strong first impression on people because of his good looks and blue eyes. Another coworker said that David had a demanding personality when he was working under the influence of drugs. Yeah, nice observation, coworker. Um, I feel like that's that's that could be anybody. Um, so drugs and drinking, like for most people, were really David's downfall, because on October twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six, David Martin Long would be a free man no more. That Friday night, David is picked up, again, hitchhiking in Austin by a teenage guy, and David is extremely intoxicated. He was being very aggressive and obnoxious to this nice guy who picked him up, but major credit to this teenage boy, because after David passed out in the car, this kid went to a gas station and called the police on his drunk ass. The Austin Police Department arrests him for public intoxication, during which David gets into a somewhat serious brawl with the officers and ends up getting injured. They have to take him to the hospital because, get this shit, um, David breaks his motherfucking ankle <laughs> when fighting with the police. Um, also during his arrest, David uses a fake name to identify himself. He gives the name and birth certificate of Aaron Kyle Sanders, who was a cousin of Donna Jester's. David had stolen the document from Donna's home, and it was enough to deceive police yet again. And since there were no charges or criminal history associated with that name, they are about to let him go just like Leon County did. As the Austin Police Department was preparing for the release of David Long, a fingerprint analyst makes an incredible discovery. Two years prior, This technician had processed fingerprints found at the scene of a burglary, and when reviewing David Long's prints, the analyst noticed that one or two points on David's fingerprints that they had took from him during his booking for the public intoxication incident looked extremely familiar and similar to the prints found at the burglary. Um, Once they officially compared the two sets of prints, it was confirmed that this Aaron Kyle Sanders was actually David Martin Long. The murderous drunk hitchhiker was finally captured. Uh, It's actually pretty funny because there is footage of when they're taking David out of one of the police cruisers after he is being transferred over to the Lancaster Police Department. And you uh, you can see him limping and hobbling and trying to walk with these escorts and you know, because his dumbass broke his ankle. Um, I truly love that they didn't give him a wheelchair. I think that's great. But he he's trying to look so, you know, hardcore and like he doesn't give a fuck. And maybe he doesn't. Maybe he is just a complete psychopath. But it, it makes me laugh. He just looks like a little bunny. Um, David Long, with his long hair and his mustache, he honestly, to give you a visual, and I'll obviously post a picture of him, but he kind of reminds me of like, Ron Swanson, but more attractive. Um, yeah, like the character Ron Swanson, but more attractive. He looks totally different with long hair and facial hair. He is one of those people who just, you know, completely transforms with any change in their haircut. 
if you if you took his mugshot from when he had um, no facial hair and a short haircut, which I think he was rocking when he was in prison, um, and compared it to when he was arrested, you wouldn't be able to tell that they were the same person by a long shot. I think he had lost a little bit of weight. He wasn't really heavy in the first place, but you can kind of see it in his cheeks. He is a totally different person. It's crazy. Uh, anyways, so Detective Hunt is able to finally sit down with old David Martin Long and question him. And to his surprise, David gives a full recount of the murders. He said that the day that he killed the three women, Donna had been nagging him about his drinking and the affection he was showing Laura. He said that they just got into some kind of argument that escalated into a huge fight. David is quoted saying that he was contemplating either getting a glass of wine or going out the door and getting the hatchet. Uh, We obviously know how that ends. David tells Detective Hunt that he goes and retrieves the axe and approaches Laura first. Which, attacking Laura first is interesting to me since she was the one he allegedly gave a shit about out of the three women, but whatever. So he asks Laura to step outside, and as soon as she takes her foot off of the first step, he throws the hatchet into the back of her skull. After she hits the ground, he realizes she isn't getting up, so now was his chance to go back into the house and deal with Donna and Dalpha. During his interview, David told Detective Hunt that things were super weird between him and Donna and that he hated her. He explained that when he retreated inside the house after making the initial attack on Laura, Donna was in the bedroom with Dalpha. His first hit struck her in the back of the head, similarly to Laura, and he continued the assault with 15 or so more chops. Unfortunately, David tells Detective Hunt the only reason he killed Dalpha was because she knew who he was and she was just a witness. He struck Dalpha five times in the forehead and face before heading back outside to finish his attack on Laura. You know how um, the autopsy reports have those diagrams of a human body so the medical examiner or the you know pathologist or whatever can mark up the paper with the areas that were affected or injured? Um, well, Dalpha had three p- primary hacks to the right forehead and cheek. The other two were closer to the top of their head. So like the right side of her face is essentially split and hanging off. I can only imagine how all of these women looked in real life. Like, absolutely gross. During all of this, that this entire confession to Detective Hunt, David is eating a fucking hamburger and smoking cigarettes, all the while telling Detective Hunt these details. So, you know, absolutely cool as a cucumber. Um, This is good, okay? He explains that he felt (laughs) that, like, he was having a satanic experience um, whatever that means, and that he was methodically killing everyone in the house one by one. I mean, that is just kind of how you kill multiple people in a house one by one. That's, that's normal. You aren't normally going to be able to kill three people at once with a hatchet, but okay. He's trying to sound cool. I get it. Satan makes you methodical. Right on. Additionally, he states that he had no remorse for murdering Dalpha or Donna, but he did have remorse for murdering Laura. While he was confessing to the murders of these women, David thought it was a good time to confess to murdering his boss from years prior by burning him alive in his trailer. But he doesn't stop there. He continues by admitting he was the suspect in the unsolved murder of an auto mechanic fucking over 15 years ago, back in 1970. 
David said he killed that man because the mechanic was demanding to be paid and David thought he was being overcharged. Turns out his bill was only uh, about $15 for a tire change, but still, that sent him over the edge and he killed him with a tire iron. After all of this, David refused to sign a confession until he was assured that he would be given the death penalty. So that's exactly what Detective Hunt did. At his trial, David testified that the women's home was filthy and smelled of dog hair and feces from several dogs that roamed freely through the home. David claimed that he was adversely affected by the filth and smell in the house, and he began to fear that Donna had dead bodies, possibly of other hitchhikers, buried in her backyard. Wouldn't that be a fun twist? He then tells the judge and jury that when Donna and Laura went into the back bedroom to talk with Dalpha, David thought that they were conspiring against him. I don't know what his attorneys were thinking by letting him testify. And on top of that, he testified to things that were like the complete opposite of what he told Detective Hunt. So I don't know what the plan was there. Um, as mentioned multiple times before, David had a lengthy history of drug and alcohol abuse and had been committed both voluntary and involuntarily to several hospitals and institutions. He alleged he had previously been diagnosed with psychosis and schizophrenia. So there's that. On top of David's, uh, excuse me, on top of David testifying, his attorney presented an insanity defense. A defense psychologist, Dr. William Hester, testified that David had a, quote, extreme antisocial personality disorder, end quote. He testified that there was a reasonable probability that David committed the murders during a psychotic episode and that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. Uh, taking the stand, David even testified that he believed he was demon-possessed at the time of his killings. I guess he did divulge a version of that to Detective Hunt, at least, the whole satanic experience, if you will. Um, Dr. James Grigson, a psychiatrist called by the state, testified that David Martin Long had a, quote, severe sociopathic personality disorder, end quote. He testified that this was not a disease and had no organic origin. According to Grigson, David was not insane and understood the difference between right and wrong. I think I agree with this guy, even though I think David could have suffered from both antisocial personality disorder and sociopathic personality disorder. But anyways, it doesn't really matter what I think, because a jury convicted David Martin Long of capital murder in February of 1987 and sentenced him to death. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the conviction and sentence in December of 1991, and all of his subsequent appeals in state and federal court were denied. Later on death row, David said that he killed the women because, quote, they objected to my drinking and I just got tired of hearing all the bickering, end quote. This is more in line with what he told, you know, originally told Detective Hunt and not what he testified to on the stand. Two days before his execution, David was treated at the prison hospital for an overdose of prescription antidepressants that prison officials believed he had been hoarding in his cell. How ironic that people were trying to save the life of a man who was just about to be executed in 48 hours anyway. Um, I couldn't find a last meal request for him, so who cares? We have had some extra lame and extra stupid last statements in the past, and I don't know if we have a top 10, but I would say he's in the top 10. So David's last statement, quote, uh, just uh, uh, sorry, y'all. Like the, the ahs are actually spelled out. <laughs> um, I think I've tried everything I could to get in touch with y'all to express how sorry I am. 
I never was right after that incident happened. I sent a letter to somebody, you know, a letter outlining what I feel about everything. But anyway, I just wanted right after that to apologize to you. I'm real sorry for it. I was raised by the California Youth Authority. I can't really pinpoint where it started, what happened, but what really believe that's just the bottom line. What happened to me was in California. I was in their reformatory schools and the penitentiary, but uh, yeah, they create monsters in there. That's it. I have nothing else to say. Thanks for coming, Jack. <clears throat> like these people have years and years to prepare for these, these last statements. And they always say the dumbest and the most nonsensical garbage that no one gives a fuck about. Like you want to blame the murders of essentially now five people on California. And like what he said wasn't even, you know, intelligible. Like you couldn't understand anything. You know, maybe he did have some bullshit happen to him back then. I don't know. But like, come on, dude. Like at that point, just like, don't say anything if that's all you have to say. <laughs> but anyway, who cares about him anyway? Uh, the lethal injection took effect. David Long snorted and gurgled and a blackish ugh, brown liquid spouted from his nose and mouth. A prison spokesman said that the liquid was a solution he received as a treatment for his drug overdose two days later. And on January 8th, 1999, David Martin Long was officially dead. Fuck you, David Martin Long. And that is the story of the murders of Laura Lee Owen, Donna Jester, and Dalpha Jester. I surprisingly don't have any questions and theories for you uh, on this case, but if you do, uh, feel free to reach out to me and let me know. Uh, anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will be back at some point with more Texas true crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.